right. Good morning, Faith Church. What's going on, everybody? Hey, welcome to the house. It's so good to have everybody here at our Florence location. Can we welcome our Lawrenceburg Faith Church family? It's so good to have you guys in the house as well. Hey, I don't know if you know this, but we are about one week away from receiving our certificate of occupancy, which means we're going to be able to get in our brand new building in Lawrenceburg. It looks amazing. We're not going to be in services for probably another month or plus, uh, but we're going to get in the building and start doing some things that are going to make it ours. But man, so excited. Thank you so much, Faith Church, for your generosity, for your giving, and for your praying. For all of you that are making that possible, man, we believe that God's called us to influence our region. And man, we're doing that right here in Florence, in Middle Tennessee, and our Lawrenceburg campus. Excited. In, uh, in spring of 2022, we're going to plant our third campus in Muscle Shoals, putting Pastor Ryan and Miss Heather as the campus pastors there. It's going to be exciting. So again, man, thank you guys, man. So excited what God's doing. Hey, listen, my name is Steve Husky, lead pastor here at Faith Church, and my privilege, man, to lead this church and pastor you, and uh, man, just excited. And really, at the end of the day, it's not about who we are, it's about who Jesus is. Man, we say every week that we believe that Jesus, he is the hope of the world. So whoever you are, whatever you're going through, your issue, your heartache, or your habit, if you'll open up your life to Jesus, he will meet you where you are, and it'll be the greatest decision that you've ever made. Come on, people know that's true. Come on, show God some praise in this house. Come on, somebody. Come on, just a minute, give God your best. Come on. So listen, I want to open up with this question for all of us here in the house and in Lawrenceburg and those who are watching online. Here's the question, where is the fear? Let me ask maybe a bigger question. What do you fear? What do you fear in life? For anybody who's been around this building long enough or part of this church, my fear of spiders is well-documented. My therapist officially calls it arachnophobia. I'm not really in counseling, but maybe I should be. I know it seems irrational that a large six foot three, 230 pound man would be afraid of spiders, but when you were raised in the household I was raised in, you probably would be afraid of spiders too, right? You know how it is. It's the man's job, and I know that seems misogynist, but that's the culture I grew up in. I'm getting over it. Just pray for me. But it's kind of the man's job in the house to kill the bugs, kill the spiders, so my wife and I, because I hate spiders, we fight about it. In fact, nobody does it. Sometimes, I'm going to be honest, we give spiders run of the house. But I grew up in a house where if there was a spider in the house, it was my dad who would go kill the spider, and most good dads would then throw it away or flush it down the toilet. But no, he insisted on chasing me and my brothers around the house with a dead spider, and that's why I have spider issues. Anybody else have some arachnophobia? What do you fear? Fears are uh, really, really common. In fact, there are literally thousands of fears listed by therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists. There are some that are common that many of us right here in this room or in Lawrenceburg that we wrestle with. In fact, if I, if I rattle off one of your phobias, just kind of make some noise just so we know we're all in this thing together, right? A common fear is a fear of clowns. Anybody? Anybody got the fear of spiders? Fear of heights? Uh, fear of enclosed spaces, fear of public speaking. Here's one. I actually put out just a little survey uh, on my social media platform, had uh, about a thousand people respond and found out in this that, you know what the number one fear of at least my followers and friends are? 60% said they had a fear of snakes. Crazy. How many of you have got some fear of snakes? Y'all know you live in the South, right? You moved where they are. What do you fear? Here's what's crazy in a culture where it feels like fear is everywhere. Where is the fear of God? Where is the fear 
of God. In our culture and society, when you look at it, there is no doubt it is sick with sin and racked with rebellion. And I believe in part it's because we have lost or have a lack of a fear of God. When you look at our educational system, all the way down from the lowest levels up through colleges and universities and higher education, you have to question what is being taught, what is happening on our campuses, what it is producing. And I think in part it is because we have lost our fear for God. Where is the fear? In government, it's some of the things that just wheels off. Where is the fear? Social media platforms, in fact, just larger, just digital media, some of the things that are being produced and broadcast, you have to ask the question, where is the fear? June is Gay Pride Month, and regardless of what you feel about that or your personal stance, one of the things that I was concerned about this week, Blue's Clues, which is a child's cartoon, they intentionally produced a product this week with a drag queen character singing a song celebrating all of the things our culture celebrates in the broad band of sexuality. And I don't want anybody here to take me as a soundbite. It's a big conversation, much bigger than a soundbite. When I bring up LGBTQ plus in this conversation, it's not for the context of people with private struggles or personal identities, but I'm talking about the perversion of innocence. Where is the fear? In marriages that are breaking apart and families that are crumbling, where is the fear? When people would rather be on the ball field than in the house of God, when you've got to beg people to serve and bribe them to show up, where is the fear of God. It's a big topic. I know it's not popular, but it is biblical. This idea of the fear of God, everybody say the fear of God. The fear of God is something that's mentioned 20 times just in the book of Proverbs alone. It's something that's mentioned about 100 times specifically by name in scripture. And because it is so prolific, it's something we got to talk about because I think we've lost it. And we got to get back and ask the question, where is the fear of God? Where is the fear of God? Now, again, when you hear fear, typically, man, it has this very negative connotation, which there are some things we are afraid of. There's some stuff we probably should be afraid of. But did you know that there is a place for healthy fear in our lives? In fact, that's a big part of parenting early on with your children to try to teach them a healthy fear, to teach them healthy boundaries. And, uh, you know, like there are some things in our household, um, you know, like we teach our kids a healthy fear of guns. I know some of you don't like guns, but for the other 99.78% of you, because we live in the South, like we already know like most of you are packing, right? Lawrenceburg, we know you got it. But we got to tell our kids, right? We had, we had to raise them. We taught our kids. They were raised around guns, but we had to teach them, listen, if you ever touch a gun, first thing you do is clear it, make sure it's loaded or not. You never put your finger on the trigger unless you tend to pull it. You never aim it at somebody unless you're willing to shoot them. We had to teach them a healthy fear about chemicals. Like, we just don't leave chemicals out for young kids. We had to teach them a healthy fear what they touch, what they don't touch. We had to teach them a healthy fear about electricity, about stoves. 
Come on, somebody. And those were our healthy fears. Why? We didn't want them to shoot somebody. We didn't want them to get electrocuted. We didn't want them to get poisoned. We didn't want them to get burned. There's a healthy fear. But the same thing that can hurt you can also help you. Fire, while it can burn, you can help you cook. While a gun can shoot you and hurt you, it can also be fun and be a sport and protect you and for hunting. While electricity can, can electrocute you, it can also power your things. So come on, it can help you. Everybody say help, and it can hurt. So you got to find this healthy balance of fear as you balance between the health and the hurt. And the same is true with God. Not that God would hurt us, but because at the end of the day, he is always there to help us. We have to find a healthy balance in the fear. Where is the fear? I would say it this way. I think really fear is fundamental. I think fear is fundamental to our relationship with Christ. It's fundamental to our understanding of who God is. But the challenge, I think, for a lot of us is we love to talk about the love of God, but we have forgotten to talk about the fear of God. We love to talk about the love of God, but we have forgotten about the fear of God. And I get it because some of you, maybe you were raised in this crazy church where all they talked about was hellfire and brimstone, and you got the impression that God hated you and the rest of humanity, and he gets off on casting people in hell. That is not the picture of our Heavenly Father. He loves you. You can never out his grace, and you can never run far enough from his love. He loves you all the way, all the time. But because some of you got religion so hard jammed down your throat, you swung the pendulum to the other side. Now you have forgotten the fear of God, and all we want to talk about is the love of God. And we have to understand it's not either or. It's both and. Because as much as we talk about grace, mercy, love, love, mercy, grace, grace, mercy, love, love, mercy, grace, you have to equally talk about fear, judgment, wrath, wrath, judgment, fear. Because those topics are equally discussed and revealed in Scripture. And while we love our Heavenly Father, we have forgotten that He's also called our judge. Where is the fear? I think there's something uh, pretty powerful about names. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but probably most of your names has some meaning or some background. You can look it up, by the way, if you're ever curious. Stephen means prince. I found that rather fitting. <laughs> Disappointed it didn't say king, but I'll take prince. I'll get there one day. Our names mean something. You should look yours up. Did you know that, right, we know that names and we give tags and titles and names because it helps define who people are? I've grown up not so much now because I feel like it's gone downhill, but for decades, I was a big boxing fan. We got any boxing fans in the house? I've had the privilege, born 1971, so I've seen some really incredible talent over the years. Grew up watching people like Marvelous Marvin Hagler, Sugar Ray Leonard, those are some cool names, Evander Holyfield. Like some of the greats, uh, in fact, today is probably not going to be as good of a fight because he's a little washed up. Floyd Mayweather's fighting tonight. I'm not willing to pay $59.95 plus taxes to watch it, but if you're going to pay it, let me know. I'll come to your house. I'm a fun guy to hang out with. But if you've ever watched boxing, anytime they advertise, like they never just say, hey, you know, hey, Roy Jones Jr. One of my all-time favorite boxers, I probably watched him box more than any other boxer and the reason I'm on him right now is because I'm in the middle of watching this biographical thing on TV on him is Mike Tyson. We've got any Mike Tyson fans in the house? <laughs> Mike Tyson, if you've never had the privilege of watching box, I mean, he would absolutely destroy his opponents. I hated to watch him because he was expensive to watch and most of the fights didn't last long. So we would all pitch in like when I was a teenager, we all had five on it on the fight and other stuff. Come on. We have five on it. 
and you would get together, get all your friends, turn the TV on, and like the fight, it would be like, ding, 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 and like 30 seconds later, ding, 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 and it's over, you're like, what? Because he would destroy his opponents in the first round. In fact, he became so fierce and so well-known, he psychologically defeated most of his opponents before he ever got to the ring. One of the first fights I watched Mike Tyson fight was he fought the champion that time. I think he was 33-0, Michael Spinks. He was undefeated, had never even been knocked down, found out in this series I'm watching, he was afraid to come out of the dressing room to fight Mike Tyson, and he should have been because Mike Tyson beat him in 54 seconds, and he never boxed again. He didn't knock him out. He knocked him out of boxing. Everybody say names. And when you watch them introduce any boxer, but especially Mike Tyson, again, they wouldn't just say, welcome, Mike Tyson. They would introduce boxers like Mike Tyson this way. And standing in this corner in the black trunk, standing 5'10", 220 pounds, kid dynamite from the streets of Brooklyn, the baddest man on the planet, will you put your hands together and welcome Iron Mike Tyson, and the ring would erupt, and his opponent would melt. <laughs> and you would think, like, Kid Dynamite, that's what he was called younger. Why? Because he would come out of the corner. As soon as the bell rung, he would come explosive. His intent was to knock you out in the first round. And he was the baddest man on the planet because at one point he was 40 and 0, I think with 35 knockouts, most of those in the first round. What I'm telling you is all of his names just weren't out there. They actually meant something. They described who he was, described who he is capable of. Did you know not only does your name mean something, and Mike Tyson's names meant something, but did you know God's names mean something? He is revealed in scripture th through so many titles, and they define his character, and they define his attributes. What is God like? And there's names like El Shaddai, which means he's all-sufficient. Whatever you need, he can do. Adonai, El Elohim, Jehovah, Jehovah Tzitkanu, the Lord our righteousness, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider, our shield, our strong tower, the Lord of heaven's armies, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. All of these titles give us a picture into who God is. And I want to introduce you this morning as we talk about the fear of God. I want to talk about two of the titles that tell us who God is and what he's like. And it's found in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Just watch it on the screen. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. Real quick as we turn, let me just tell you, the book of Revelation, the part we're about to look at, it is a picture of a worship service in heaven, which total side note has nothing to do with the message, but y'all need to hear this. When you die, you don't turn into angels, but God created you to live forever and everyone will live forever somewhere. Who you decide Jesus is to you will determine where you live forever. And if you decide to put your hope and trust and faith in Jesus, because we can't save ourselves, he's the only one who can save us then heaven isn't this ethereal place where you'll float on a cloud as a fat baby and play a harp. As amazing that kind of sounds, let's be honest. You will be you for all eternity in a redeemed state. We won't be on a cloud. God is going to recreate the paradise called earth that was found in Genesis 1 that closes in Revelation 22 and will be there forever. There will be no sin, no sickness, no rebellion, a perfect relation with each other and a perfect relation with God. Is anybody looking forward to that? Let's go. But you better believe there's going to be some worship there because we're going to be celebrating the one who made it possible for us to get there. And here is a picture of the worship that's happening in heaven. And I want you to hear the two names or the two titles given 
to the God we serve. Watch this. In, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, I want us to read it together. Lawrenceburg and Florence, every voice. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 6, come on, every voice. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. So he's standing, John, who wrote this, God gives him this heavenly vision, and he's recording what he saw. And he's saying, in the middle of this worship service, one of the other people that was there worshiping with me pointed and said, look, look at God on the throne. He said, he is the lion. Everybody say the lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the Bible says, when John opened his eyes and looked, he didn't just see the lion. He said, I saw a lamb. Everybody say a lamb. Everybody say a lion. A lamb. A lion. On the left side over here. Lion. Right side. You got to help me. Come on, Lawrenceburg, left side. Come on, that's, woo, that's fun. You ain't having fun in church, you're doing it wrong. He's the lion and he's the lamb. We love the love of God, we've forgotten the fear of God. We love to celebrate the lamb of God, but we have forgotten that he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. What does it mean when God reveals himself and discloses himself that he is the lamb? If you're new to church, ultimately it's this idea that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the way we had a relationship with God is we've always had sin since the fall, since Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator. Since then, all of us have sin in us. We are sinners. We do sin because God loves us. Because we can't save ourselves, he made a way through the Old Testament sacrificial system where instead of you dying for your sin, an animal took your place, took your punishment, and the primary sacrifice in the Old Testament was a lamb. And when Jesus showed up, when John the Baptist saw him walking down the street one day, he pointed to him and declared out loud, behold, the lamb of God who's slain from the foundation of the world. Paul identifies him in 2 Corinthians that Jesus, he is our Passover lamb. What it means that Jesus, that God is the lamb, he is the one who stepped out of heaven, who was willingly hung on a cross, who died in our place, who took our punishment, who carried our sickness and our shame and our separation so we could be saved, forgiven, and reconnected with our heavenly father. Come on, is anybody thankful for the lamb? He took it all for you, and he took it all for me, and he did it willingly, and that's why we love the lamb. That's why we love to talk about the love of God, because, man, it's amazing to know that God loves us all the way, all the time, but he's not just the lamb. Come on, somebody. He is the lion. Everybody shout the lion. Lions inspire fear. How many people have ever really seen a lion up close before? See, all you are liars. You were at a zoo looking at a lion through an eight-inch barrier that's 57 feet tall, there's zero chance that lion can get to you. I've had the privilege to travel uh, to about 30 different nations, and I've had the privilege to be in Central America and South America and all over the continent of Africa. And I've been on three different safaris, one in Kenya, one in Tanzania, and one in South Africa. Just awe-inspiring. If you've never been, you should go if you're ever there, if you're on the other side of the world in the middle of... Anyways... It's just amazing to see all of this wildlife, and we got to see, I got to see the big five, the big five elephants and lions, and I mean, just amazing. And while you're out on a safari, if you've never been, you're basically, you're in an open Jeep driving 
through their domain. No fences, no barriers. And on the last safari I was on, this was probably about 10 years ago, I was in uh, the country of Tanzania. And we're driving down the road. We've seen all this wildlife. And off the road in an open Jeep, we see a pride of lions. Not in a cage, not behind a fence. We're on a dinner plate. And our, our guide says this, we are not supposed to go off the road, but let us go over here. And he drives off the path. And this is, um, this is not an exaggeration. Come on, Lawrence Bird. I'm f- we're in the back of this open vehicle, and he takes us off, and he parks in front of this pride of lions, and the lions are as far from me to this front row. Here's a video I took. I peed a little bit right there. No, wait, he's like, let us get closer now. So we are in an open Jeep. This, I mean, lion, any one of those lions had the capability and the capacity to jump from where they were right into our open vehicle. I realized at that point, I don't have to run fast. I just have to run faster than any one of these cats. (laughs) The last time that lion growled and kind of jumped, it's because you could hear all the cameras clicking. The guy who's sitting right beside me stood up to get a better picture. And that's when our guy's like, sit down. I'm just telling you, man, when you're sitting that close to a line that's not behind a fence, not behind a barrier, like you're right there, there is a genuine, this could end bad. I'm thankful that we have the lamb who loves us, who laid it all down for us, who sacrificed his life so we could be saved and forgiven. But our God is not just a lamb. He is a lion. He deserves our awe. He is awe-inspiring. He is great and mighty. And many of us have forgotten how big he is. Where is the fear? I want to read a quote. It's by this guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. If you've never read anything by C.S. Lewis, he's a great author, um, written, written many things. He writes non, has written fiction and nonfiction. A lot of his nonfiction is stuff that's um, on the apologetics, on defending our faith. He came to Jesus late in his life, super intelligent, and he kind of writes like, here's how he reached the place of his faith in Christ. Lots and lots and lots of great books. He's also written some fiction work. The fiction work, he was also a contemporary, by the way, of T.S. Uh, Tolkien. Anybody, Tolkien? Any Tolkien fans, Lord of the Rings? Uh, they were friends. Anyways, um, so C.S. Lewis wrote a line of books, fiction, called um, The Chronicles of Narnia. The first book in the series of Chronicles of Narnia was called The Lion, the Witch, and the... So y'all have read it. Great book. If you've never read it, really, I'd encourage you to watch the movies with your kids. They're really cool. The first book, all of them are this way, but really the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is really a picture of humanity, our wrestle with the enemy, and the sacrifice that God made of his son Jesus. 
And there's two brothers and two sisters, the, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, who are pictures of us. Um, the white witch, she is a picture of Satan. Um, Edmund, remember, he, he, he gets on the witch's side. It's a picture of the fall. And the great Aslan, everybody say Aslan. The great Aslan is the central character in the story. He is a picture of Christ who ultimately sacrificed himself to save Edmund. And it's a picture of Jesus dying to save us. But throughout the story, before, before the four kids meet Aslan, like they keep hearing about this amazing Aslan and how big he is. And they hear that he's a lion. And that, that like C.S. Lewis is such an articulate writer. And he builds this like, Aslan is coming. Aslan is coming. Aslan is coming. And there's a point in the story where they know he's about to be there. And young Lucy, who's the young girl, has this conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about the coming of Aslan. And she says this. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. It's a picture of the God we serve. Yes, he is a lamb who loves us, but yes, also, he is a lion that we are called to adore. I don't need a God who is safe. I need a God who's large and in charge and big and on the throne, who's sovereign over everything, and he deserves the awe and the wonder of his people. Where is the fear of God? Where is the fear? I feel that especially as a culture, but probably more importantly as a church, that we have declawed Christ. We have defanged our Heavenly Father. We have domesticated our Deliverer. And all we see Him as is the Lamb. And you can get close to a Lamb. You can cuddle with a Lamb. And that's what God wants. Our Heavenly Father, He wants you to feel close and safe. The worst the Lamb's going to do to you is bye. But He also wants you to feel the wonder and the awe and the fear that he is a lion. He is the lamb of God, and he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Come on, can we make some noise for the king of kings today? If you're looking for a definition, Florence and Lawrenceburg, here's my definition of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is having a 365 days and 360 degrees awareness that we are living our life in view of a holy God. The fear of the Lord is having a 365 days, not just on Sunday, not just during Christmas, but every day of the year, 365 days, a 360-degree awareness, whoever you are, wherever you find yourself, an awareness that we are living our life in view of a holy God, which means I can hide some of my actions from some people. I can hide a lot of my actions from a lot of, my, a lot of people. But this awareness that everything I think, everything I say, and everything I do, it is lived in open view to a not just God. You need to understand a holy God. A holy God loves sinners but hates sin. You know, one of the things that, that keeps me in line, what keeps me on the rails is a genuine fear of ever standing on this platform having to read a letter like I've seen many pastors read saying, forgive me, I've fallen. And I'm not above that. I sin like everybody else. 
but is a genuine fear of ever having to stand in front of the people I have the privilege to pastor. I have a genuine fear of ever disappointing my wife in our family. What keeps me from an affair, what keeps me from off the rails, what keeps me is fear, a healthy fear. But at the end of the day, it's a fear. The last thing I want to do is disappoint the God who gave it all to sacrifice for me to make me his son. And I'm not saying it's always in view, but it always should be because that's what the fear of God is. And so here's a couple scriptures real quick that talk about the fear. Again, it's prolific in scripture. It's found all over the place. Let me just read a couple. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the foundation of knowledge. Fear is fundamental. Fear is foundational. Proverbs 9, 10, The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Proverbs 3, 7. Come on, Lawrenceburg, Florence, everybody read this with me. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. See, what he's saying is, is when you understand how great God is and how good God is, I may not always agree with God. In fact, there's things I read. I don't want to treat my enemies like that. And the last thing I want to do is pray for them. And if I'm going to pray for them, I'm going to pray, God, take them out. And sometimes I don't want to do good, and sometimes I don't want to do right, and sometimes my desires want me to go a different direction. But at the end of the day, what the fear of God does, it puts my life in the context of I want to surrender my life to who he is because it's not my wisdom, but it's his wisdom. It's not my ways, but it's his ways. And a fear of the Lord is the foundation, the wisdom and knowledge. Let me ask this question. Anybody here grow up with a fear of your father? Come on, wave at me if you like... You had a genuine fear of your father that your dad could kill you at any time and make another one look just like you. Wave at me. Florence? Absolutely. If you're here and, and you weren't raised in a father with a good parent, good father, I, I'm truly, I'm sorry. Or if you were raised with a father that was abusive, I'm truly sorry. I hate that you missed what God intended. Genuinely, though, man, I was raised with such great parents. We weren't raised to know the Lord. My parents didn't really know the Lord, so how could I expect them to help me to know the Lord? But other than that, man, we, our, my parents worked hard to love us and to provide for us, and my dad was such a good dad, man. We, like, we were the house that were, like, building go-karts and blowing stuff up, and other kids, like, went snow, like, snow, like um, sled riding downhills. Come on, that's lame. My dad would, like, hook a rope to a Jeep and pull us, like, 30 miles an hour in, some, in a field that we didn't own. It was awesome. There was a good chance one of us was not coming home alive. Always made my mom nervous. The celebration of my dad's legacy as we all lived. <laughs> but it was awesome. Come on. But here's what I want to tell you is, is I love my dad. No question my dad loved me. But you better believe there was a genuine fear of my dad. You know, mom, eh, she was the lamb. Dad was the lion. Come on. Like all mom had to say was wait till your dad gets home. Till he got home. And it's about to get real. Why? Because it was never a question, do, do, I, do I love my dad or does my dad love me? Even when my dad disciplined me, even when I didn't like the discipline, even when it was corporal punishment, I didn't like it, but it never caused me to question whether he loved me. My dad was the lamb and the lion to me, and we serve a God who is the same. He's not a lamb or a lion, a lion or a lamb. He is both. If you ask me, why did I honor my dad? Why did I do what he told me? Did I do it because, he, because I loved him, or did I do it because I was afraid of him? And the answer is yes. <laughs> yep. I remember one time uh, my parents gave me quite a bit of liberty as a teenager, and I took unfortunate advantage of it. 
But um, I don't remember really my parents ever really telling me no a lot. Like, I was, anyways. But I do remember one night, I can't remember why, and generally I drove, but this one night, some friends of mine was coming over to pick me up, and for whatever reason, my dad said, no, you're not going out tonight. And I remember I was determined as a rebellious teenager, because that's what teenagers are, those terms are synonymous, that I'm going to do what I want to do. And I remember my dad standing in the driveway while I ignored him and went and got in the car anyways. And I remember him walking out, watching us drive up the road as I looked over my shoulder. I remember thinking and saying to my friends, boys, we better make this a good one because this one could be my last. (laughs) And I don't even remember what happened when I got home, which could be indicative of what happened when I got home. (laughs) But I never questioned if he loved me. Come on, I want everybody here to know something. When the world talks about fear, it's a bad thing. We need to get the fear of God back in the house of God, not because we should be afraid of God, but because he is all and wondrous. He is great and mighty, and we should fear that we are sinners in the blaze of his glory and his holiness. Where is the fear of God? So when you wrestle with the lamb and the lion and the lion and the lamb, it also is true with the love of God and the fear of God, the fear of God and the love of God. Did you know equally it doesn't just define Scripture who God is, it defines who we are. And in the declaration of God who says who you, are, who you are and who I am, who we are, it also says we are servants and we are sons. Well, which is it? Am I a servant or a son? Yep. You're both. Because he's a lamb, we get to be sons and daughters. But because he's a lion, we're called to be servants. And there is a tension that I understand. I I, I get it. There is a tension between those two things. I would say it this way. If you're taking notes, our fear of the Lord properly frames our relationship with the Lord. Our fear of the Lord properly frames our relationship with the Lord. Love is the canvas. Fear is the frame. Love is where God's painted the picture of how he views you, how he sees you, how he loves you, and what he was willing to give to make you his. But the fear of the Lord is the framework. It is the boundaries to our relationship. It defines who he is and defines who we are. And if you lose the frame, you don't have a picture. All you have is a document. But it is the entirety of the picture. It is the canvas, and it is the frame. Love is the canvas, and fear is the frame. And we don't need either or. We need both and. We need the love of God from the Lamb of God as servants of God, and we need uh, or sons of God, and we need the fear of God from the servants of God to surrender to the goodness of God. Where is the fear? Here's the way God told the nation of Israel. Here's what he had to say in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Come on, everybody read this together. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Every voice he requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases him and love him and serve him with all of your heart and your soul. Which means as you make financial decisions, as you make relationship decisions, as you make moral decisions, our life is framed with the love of God and the fear of God. He says, if you'll frame your life with these two principles, not just love without fear, not just fear without love, he says, that's where you find my blessing at. It's so powerful. There's a story I don't have a lot of time to get into. In fact, I almost didn't share it because it's, it's pretty controversial, but it's biblical, it's scriptural, it happened. And so I'm going to leave you to wrestle with it. It's found in the book of Acts. And if you don't know the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the fifth book. Everybody say fifth book. 
fifth book of the New Testament. There's the Old Testament, which is the old covenant. It's the old contract we have with God. The old contract was your sinners. God is good. He made a way for us to be forgiven through animals, the lamb. The New Testament, the new covenant is now there's a new lamb, one final sacrifice for all time, for all people, the lamb of God, Jesus, who the father sent on a rescue mission on our behalf to die for our sin, to take our punishment and our shame, to give us the gift of forgiveness and grace and make us his children. The new covenant. And so in this, God is saying, hey, listen, I want you to, I want you to make this known. And so Jesus shows up. He shows up as the lamb. The first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the story of the life of Jesus, what he taught, what he did, ultimately culminating in his death on the cross and his resurrection. Pretty powerful stuff. And the book of Acts, the fifth book, everybody say fifth book, is from the time of his resurrection to the first about 50 years of the history of the church. How did the church get started? How did it gain momentum? How did it become a global movement? And what do you find in Acts chapter 1? It's very powerful. Acts chapter 1, one of the things that made the message global was there was a handful of disciples, 120, who hung out in this place called the upper room because Jesus said, don't even try to take this thing global without my help. And while they're there, the Bible says that there was a, a mighty rushing wind and the Holy Spirit fell on all of them and filled them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, where they were empowered to take the message, not just take, leave it at home, but take it from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Here we are 2,000 years later, impacted by the good news of Jesus. Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up, preaches publicly this message for the first time, and thousands get saved. Acts chapter 3, he has another opportunity. It went so well the first time, why not try it again? And thousands get saved. Acts chapter 4, they're walking into this place called the temple, and they're there for the hour of prayer because that's what Christians do. Christians pray. They're walking into the temple. There's a guy who's hanging out there who's been lame his entire life. He can't walk. He wants some money so he can get a meal. Peter says, I don't have any money, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This guy gets radically healed. It disrupts the entire city. The message just keeps on gaining momentum. And then Acts chapter 5, the fifth book, the fifth chapter, something pretty profound happens. And it's a story, if you've never read it, of a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Here's the story, right? I mean, here are these groups of people like you and I who are figuring out faith, figuring out what it looks like to love Jesus, and they're, they're figuring out generosity, and they're figuring out how to do community together. They're figuring out what it looks like to live this thing out loud. And because generosity should be a hallmark of Christ followers, there were some people that were giving everything away so everybody's needs were met. And so this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they have a piece of property. They decide to sell the piece of property and give the money to the church. God never said you had to give all of it, but they decide to give all of it. But the problem is they, don't really, they tell everybody they give all of it, but they don't give all of it. The Bible doesn't say how much they sell it for, but for conversation, let's say they sell it for $100,000. They sell this piece of property for $100,000. They pocket 50 and give the church 50K. But they show up at church and they're like, hey, y'all, woo! We're rolling deep in this place. 50, 50 G's, church. Look what God's doing through us. And because of their arrogance and their deceit, because I mean, God loves me and I can live however way I want, and God just loves me. Ananias walks into church with the announcement of, look how generous I am. And the Bible says, Ananias drops dead. Sapphira, his wife, has no idea. 
because she took the 50K and she was out shopping. Y'all know what I'm talking about. She comes in. She's got on some nine-inch heels. She's got on a new dress. She's rolling with some bling. She's like, yo, look what we did, everybody. We blessed the church. We sold this property and we gave it all. Had no idea what happened to her husband. And when she made the announcement, she fell dead. Now, here's why that story is so profound. Is because in the middle of this new covenant that God is a lamb and he loves us and he'll always love us. And no matter what happens, I can live however I want. God's going to love me. God said, yeah, I'm the lamb. That's what the new covenant's about. I die for your sin. I love you. I will always love you. I'll never stop loving you. But while you acknowledge me as your sacrifice and as you see me as a lamb, don't forget that I'm still the lion. And when Ananias and Sapphira are taken out of the church, wrapped and buried, it says this, great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Where is the fear? Have you framed your life with the fear of the Lord? You'll know you have because it'll genuinely shape your decisions. You'll know you have because you'll walk with a 365-day, 360-degree awareness that you are living your life in view of a holy God. The same guy who wrote Proverbs is the same guy who wrote the book Ecclesiastes. The king, Solomon, one of the wisest men next to Jesus to ever live, And after living life and looking backwards, here was his conclusion, and we'll close with this. Every voice, will you just read this last verse with me? He says, here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. My heart walking into this message as the wheels come off of our culture is if fear can come back to the house, we're going to be all right. And I'm glad we get to celebrate and sing about the goodness of God, the Lamb of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God. But let's not lose focus of the fear of God, the wrath of God, the judgment of God that comes from the Lion of God. Will you all pray with me? Father, we love you, God. Thank you for the revelation of your word. I pray all of us in this room would just take a moment to examine our lives not just in the lens of the lamb, but in the lens of the lion? Are we living our life with the awareness and the awe that you deserve? Help us, God, to continue to frame our life with the fear of God. Every day, every decision, 365 days, 360 degree awareness. Father, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody who agrees said amen.